0: Actually, we have no idea, but
1: it's a podcast. podcast. We, uh, actually we don't know yet. We're not sure, but we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna talk about beer. The best we're ever a beer podcast. We're gonna talk it's about,
0: somehow it's gonna end up with technology. Yep. But we'll definitely
1: start out with beer. Uh, publish it on the internet.
2: Uh, we're just we're, guests. we're just three buddies. He's is he's the one musketeer.
1: Welcome to the Pack of Pushes podcast. This is Greg Ferrer. How are you tonight? We are doing a beer ops, a beer ops, beer ops, beer ops, network beer ops of some uh, some description. So we are literally encamped at a bar called the Vertigo Brewing, which is in a garage mm-hmm. somewhere in Portland, in Oregon. We have no particular agenda for this show, but we're going to uh, drink beer and talk into these microphones and perhaps come out with something semi-intelligent. So joining me today is Matt. Say hello to the audience, tell them a
2: little bit about yourself. Hello audience, my name is Matt Oswald. Uh, I'm a a network software developer working out of the uh, Vancouver, Washington area, just across the river here from Portland.
0: Hey folks, this is Keith Townsend, at CTO Advisor on Twitter, Infrastructure Architect.
1: You know your Twitter handle Matt is at Mearden, what's the story behind that?
2: Awesome. So, yeah, uh, Mirden actually is an intentional misspelling of the old English version of Merlin. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Stargate f- uh, fans in the audience will appreciate this. I actually got the idea back when I was watching Stargate as a kid. Mm. And uh, the, the, there was a show where Michael Jackson came on and, and was talking about Merlin. This was after the yep. the whole, you know, Goa'ul defeat, that kind of thing. Yep. And... Uh, and so Michael Jackson was talking about Merlin, but he, he mentioned that the old English name for Merlin was was Merdin, yep. and it's M Y R D D N, I believe it is. Yep, I probably yep. butchered that, but uh, anyway, so I was it's signing d-d, up. D D, it's actually a th. So in go.
1: in the, the old Celtic language, D D is a th sound, not okay. a d, not okay. a d, but so it'd be S- Merthin.
2: Right. So literally. so so I whatever the, you know whatever the spelling was, I looked it up at the time and uh, I had tried to sign up for some sort of a gaming service with that, uh, with that username and it was taken. And so I messed with the spelling a little bit and, and lo and behold, Myrdan was born and I just kept it.
1: But you don't have two D, so I can't say it's Merthon, not Mierden.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's totally Americanized, I will admit. Yep, absolutely.
1: Yeah. There you go. I always wondered, I always wanted to know why Matt Oswald
2: <laughs> is at Meaden.
0: Never because, got around to changing because it. Because I'm Plus,
1: always sitting in my email typing Mirden.
2: Yeah. Damn it. What's his real name? I've
0: often wanted that myself, so I'm glad uh, I'm Yeah. I'm glad that question
2: came up. Yeah, was it as exciting as you anticipated it would be? about yes okay good. Yeah. Uh, good it's a bit like a I orchestrated of mine. this just for that point
1: it's a bit like ethereal mine. it had a really good purpose back in 2008 <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah. in 2015 I'm not 100% sure I remember why yeah for sure yeah it had like lots of different you know the, you know when you think of a name for a blog or a um or for a twitter handle and you think you'd go really deep and you get really into it and you spend all this time trying to think of something and then you and then 5 years later you go like I can't remember why. Yeah, it, it's just
2: yeah. just, it just well, keep, what it is. Keeping it classless, right? You know that 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 name for my blog is is totally all about when I was learning classful versus classless coding, which, is, which is the which is the, <laughs> I,
0: I, I can't have, <laughs> way in my past.
2: I don't think about that stuff at all now. It's ridiculous, but you know, I just keep it. It's, why would you change it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, It's out there, so why because not? Because
1: now you've got class or you're trying to keep
2: it class? Yeah, yeah,
1: there's certain,
2: but, yeah, I can twist the meaning. I can twist the meaning.
1: I kind of dig the, you know, like keeping it classless is a thing.
2: Yeah, sure. I kind of <laughs> like that sort of thing. So yeah. you
1: just moved to Portland.
2: Yes. Because Just because? Just because. Just because. Yeah, the girlfriend got a new uh, job in the area, mm-hmm. uh, and I work from home, hmm. uh, so you know, made it made it very flexible. So Just working from to home. Check out working the idea. from
1: home. I work from home most of my time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, as well, and uh, I've discovered the joys of a bathrobe. <laughs> yeah. 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 Have you Have you gotten to this depth of? I have. You have. I have. You have a bathrobe. Yes. And do you feel the power <laughs> when you get up and put that bathrobe on and everybody else is and you see the cars driving out of the street? <laughs> I don't know what time you get up in the morning. I assume you get up normal time.
2: What is normal time, Greg? <laughs> <laughs> so if I by normal similar, time you mean 10 a.m., then absolutely. I have a similar thing.
0: I, I live on a golf course. I don't play golf. But the couple of days out from a week that I work from home, I'll sit out on my deck with my coffee with a bath roll, but whatever. Yeah. And the uh, uh, golfers are looking at me like, Bastard! Like, what is
2: this guy... <laughs> Oh, no, I know what you mean. Like, I would go out, I would go out, and I, I just did this today, actually, where I was taking the, the garbage cans. They got emptied, and I was walking out to get them back inside. It was probably noon when I got around to getting them out. And uh, there were some folks, you know, across the street looking at me like, why are you home? Like, you're <laughs> supposed to be at work. And I'm you're like, to I salvage. am at work. What are yeah. you talking about? This is me working. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm working hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: But it's, it's a weird thing working from home. Do you get... Um, so I sort of... Sometimes I struggle, like I get a bit lonely. Like yeah. you miss that. Um, there's a certain ritual power to getting up in the morning and getting in your car, yes. driving to a site, taking the position in the desk, and then the mode comes on, and then yes. you start working.
2: I wholeheartedly um, agree.
1: Yeah, and then you, you know, at the end of the day, you say it's five oh five clock off time. No, I well, would. You know what I mean? Like you, uh-huh. there's, there's a distinct start, there's a distinct end, yep. and then you spend an hour in the car listening to podcasts on the way home. <laughs> Cheap plug, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, Uh, You know, whatever it is that you do on the car on your way to and from. And then sort of when I started working from home, which I guess is sort of like about 18 months ago, there was that it sort of felt like weekends like seven days of weekends. right work yeah are you sort of moving through that phase to start patterning your life or are you
2: yeah I mean so I started working from home uh, actually at my last job I was working for a, a reseller out of the Dallas area so yeah. I you know if I was actually going to go to an office I'd have to fly to Dallas so most of the time I was working out of my home office yeah. and uh, now especially considering that my work is is less travel oriented because I'm now developing software instead of actually you know working on customer networks yeah uh, it's even there's even more of an emphasis on being as efficient as possible at home and i interview folks you know for for the for the team that i'm on right now i interview folks a lot yeah uh, and and uh, some of which are in the san jose area where where my employer is headquartered and some of which work remotely yeah and uh they always ask that question they they say you know what what is it like working from home so i have a pretty good set of advice that i give and i gotta say uh it's nice to hear that you know there is the real struggle because it it sounds great it really does it's not a real struggle but it's a it's
1: a kind of struggle. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In that um, you need to make sure that you're being self-disciplined enough to start. Sure. And in a weird way, self-disciplined enough to stop. Because sometimes I'm guilty of not stopping
0: at the end of the day. Yeah. I, might yes. just- I find that a real problem. My wife yeah. will come down all the time and she's, she'll say, it's 5, it's 5.30. Why are you still working? Yeah. Or don't you take a lunch? Yeah. Like, what, do you, what do you do for lunch? Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, that's, that's, what I, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, it, it, the struggle of working from home, it, you know, it's great at first. You certainly feel like you're able to focus a lot more, especially as you're, as you're oriented more towards, you know, working uh, from your computer um, rather than, you know, going, going to meetings and things like that. There's definitely an element of enhanced focus. But I've, I've found absolutely to that point, you do a lot of, uh, you do a lot of blending of your work-life balance in yeah. this mode, you have to be much more disciplined and much more intentional with mm. the, with the phases of your work. Like this is work time, I'm going to do, do I'm going to do work, and I'm going to set a timer. At the end mm. of that timer, I will get up and take a walk, something mm. like that. Do you
1: walk? Like I normally leave the house, put shoes yeah. on, get you know, growing up clothes and put them on.
2: Yeah, I then, try to. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah.
1: get out and walk around the suburbs. Or
2: you got to replace that ritual with something. You yeah. have to yeah. because there's no there's no replacing the traditional office experience at home. So you're you know. not going to be able to get that same experience, but you can replace it with other things. One of which is just you know taking a walk.
1: The bigger, one of the cha- bigger challenges I face is time shifting. So I might be working in UK time, which is GMT plus one currently, but you know Ethan is in GMT minus is in minus five in Eastern time. Yeah. Drew's in in Eastern time, but Robin's in minus eight. But then of course we're talking a lot to vendors, we're getting briefings, and they're all eight hours later. So yeah. quite often. You know, I find my day actually starting at 5 o'clock at night in the afternoon. I was when the first of the meetings start, which means I can... But I have daughters who get up at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning to go to school. Yeah. And then I'm up, I'm awake. I make a point of getting up because I think it's like, as a parent, you want to be up when the when they get up to sort of say, everybody's up. Sure. I, I think it's like a leadership. It's kind of a leader. I don't have to get up because they just get up and sort themselves out. Right. But I, I like to be up and to say goodbye to them and to sort of show them that, yes, I'm up. I'm about to start work. It's not like I'm lying in bed like some slothy.
0: <laughs> yeah. <kid>. After, <laughs> after my uh, oldest, when she graduated from uh, high school here in the U.S., uh, she decided not to go to school the first year mm-hmm. of college. And uh, she was actually quite surprised that from graduation until when she decided to go to college, I'd w- wake her up at like 7.30 in the morning like, mm-hmm. well... You have to go and do something because if I have to get up, you have to get up. But it's more of a, I agree with you, it's more of a discipline thing. It's a leadership thing. It's, you know, it's it's not getting into a rut or uh, just bad habits. Well, there was a a time when I
1: was getting up at, for a while back there, uh, earlier this year, I started sleeping in and I started getting up at 10 or 11 and started to going to bed at, you know, midnight, 1 oh, o'clock. Oh, yeah. You know. I know that. I know that game. Is that your regular <laughs> game,
2: or have you changed out of that? No, pretty much. Yeah, that's pretty much my regular game. And, no. and I think uh, this kind of coincides, A, the schedule that we're talking about right now, but also the whole, like, idea of, um, you know, what you do during your day, the activities. The, the key thing here is, like, does your employer... Or do they care about your? Because I, you know, my, my my girlfriend and a bunch of my friends, they work for companies who mandate you you show up at nine, you leave at five. That's the that's mm-hmm. the culture of many companies, at least here in the U. S. And uh, very few times you'll come across a company that says, "Look, I don't care the time. I do care a little bit because I want to make sure that you're like available for collaboration, that kind of stuff. But yeah. largely, what I care about is that you're getting your stuff done. So it really depends on, on your
1: lucky, co- company right? culture. You've got to be somebody who's not in meetings with other people. Who's, yeah. You've got to be able to work
0: asynchronously. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I have a boss that literally wouldn't care if I came in any days of the week. I have a brutal commute. Uh, on a yeah. worst day, it's four and a half hours round trip total. And on a good day, it's uh, three hours. Hmm. And he understands. And, you know, I wouldn't have to come in if I don't have to. But I meet with people consistently. So I find that I'm coming into the office four to five days a week still because I just have to meet with people sometimes. And your role just, and I think it's, that's the thing I think we miss sometimes. We have to be smart about when we have the flexibility to work from home, when we choose to use that that power. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can actually hurt your career really bad, even if your manager doesn't function. You actually have
1: to work harder at communicating Yes. Talking to people. If you work remote, you have to be able to answer. So you use Slack?
0: Yep.
2: Yeah,
1: so you use internally to your organization? Yeah, we actually just moved to it, yep. Yeah. And so at Packet Pushes internally, we use Slack to communicate. And there's just like, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and there's a whole pile of conversations that happened while I was asleep because those guys are five hours behind, you know, or in any given day, somebody might be taking a day off or right. whatever. And those, com- but we have different rooms of conversation in Slack and so all, there'll be a room which is you know like future show planning another one about business there'll be another one about idle chit chat you know coffee chat you know there, there's one room which is like coffee coffee room you know where you normally meet people in the coffee room and right. people paste their favourite links and and all that sort of stuff and that actually has become really significant way of asynchronously communicating with each other Yeah. so right now when I get you know back to the hotel room tonight I'll fire up the Slack and answer all of the conversations yep. that have happened over the last three or four hours. Yep. And the people have no there's no need for a phone call. Right. There's no need for an email. Yep. There's no need for a face-to-face. There's no need for whenever I get to answer those questions, as long as I do it within a day, mm-hmm. that's fine. Sure. Yep. I, I, yeah. I think you've got to have that tooling though. You've got yeah. to have that whether it's Slack or one of the other tools. I mean Cisco's produced something built off their WebEx platform. There's a bunch of others trying to copy what Slack is. None of them is good as Slack, by the way. Just use Slack. Don't use any of that other Um, (laughs) Have you seen any of the others?
2: Uh, You know, I've seen HipChat from someone else's perspective. I've not personally used it. From my perspective, from what I've heard, HipChat is a not so close, but it would be second. It would be second to Slack.
0: I, I use Jabber in the same way. But I don't think the social contract. I don't think the people I use it with get that social contract. Yeah. So they'll I am me.
2: Yeah. And
0: I'll reply three or four hours sure. later. Yeah. Because That's if it was really important, you the the reason for me coming into the office is so that you can walk to my desk. Huh. Yes. Or uh, you can give me a call or whatever. So or you can hit me up on Slack, which is yep. the the medium for exactly that up. You know, we, it's funny, in some organizations they they demand that you're available on Jabber or yes. whatever your IM platform is. But I, I just
2: well, that's I mean, we, that we keep we keep talking about this asynchronous versus synchronous, and I think that's the key here. Like, you have to have a culture for at least your team, or, or maybe your your company at large, if you're lucky, um, where asynchronous communication is okay, right? Like, for most of the companies that I've worked at. Um, you know, you'll 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 send an e- somebody will send you an IM, and if you don't respond to them in the next five minutes, they're going to send you an email. If you don't respond to that within the next you know ten minutes or fifteen minutes, they're going to call you. It just really depends on the on the role uh, that, that you're in um, and the culture of the company. Sometimes they understand that. Like if you communicate proactively and say, "Look, I'm on a different time zone" or whatever your situation. I will get back to you. Just give it time. It's just the nature of the business. It, it might work, but sometimes it might not. depends on the person. It depends on the company
1: culture. Some companies, like, if I come and stand at your desk, I'm expecting you to give me your immediate attention. Exactly. Yeah. But it's very disruptive to the work that you're currently doing. Yep. So I don't find value. I would normally punish people who come and stand at my desk by saying, yes, I'll get back to you. <laughs> Not because... Yeah. So my way of handling that was always to say, to them, yeah. okay, let me just make a note of that on my to-do list. I'll get back to you by later this yeah. week.
2: And then, If you hadn't
1: have come and stood at my desk, it would have been tomorrow.
2: Yeah. Well, but, you have to train people like that, right? Yeah. You get away with that in the office, and I think that's one of the cool things, other than being able to wear a bathrobe, uh, <laughs> working from home. I just where... can't
1: get over my bathrobe. Like, my wife <laughs> bought it for me, like, years ago, and it's been festering in the back of my closet for, like... And then I put it on, and I went... This is actually really good. It's so, really good. My like wife really.
0: has had has done the bathrobe thing. And I didn't I didn't get it. Yep. And uh, one day, like I just put hers on, which you know I am comfortable with my <laughs> I, 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 Picks it or it didn't happen. And uh, I put hers on. I'm like, oh wow. This, this is kinda oh, this is this is this is, this is kinda, nice. Yeah. Nice. But you know we talk about You culture. haven't
1: moved on from there into other items of clothing or uh, maybe that's not what that's we That's another should, uh, podcast. It stands okay. for <laughs> reason if that was different comfortable. Channel, just just saying. Completely yes, different just different say. Just, okay. Maybe <laughs> so, too much information. <laughs> yes.
0: So, <laughs> so we uh, we're talking about cultures and it's interesting coming from a consulting background where I flew to a client site so that a client can come to my desk. Yeah. and interrupt my workflow. I, I, you know, I still have that mentality. So I, I'm still trying to adjust to the, this new culture of, you know, well, I sent you an IM, and I'm like, well, I'm physically here for a reason. Yeah. So if you know, if you could just send me an IM, I'd be at home in this, in, in the role. Yeah. One of the things that I've done is I,
1: um, at is one of the things that we've done is implement an automatic calendaring system. So we actually have a, a, a service software as a platform. Yeah, because someone's got a service. I'm not going to give them a reference because the software is actually really, really shit. Hmm. <coughs> and it's, it's like... But it works, but it's crap. Yeah. And I really don't want to give them any <laughs> credit. The, <path. laughs> the concept works. Yeah. But you can go and visit this URL and click on a calendaring system. And you can schedule an a, a calendaring appointment on my calendar. And the, the reason I do that is to try and encourage people to meet with me over the internet. I do not want to have to... like. I'm here for an event with Intel. Intel uh, was conducting an influencer event, and that's why I'm in Portland, Oregon, and able to be here. I'm proud of that. Intel's willing to invite me to come and to pay cover my costs. And I don't get paid for being here, but they cover my expenses. Um, travel, travel entertainment, free meals. Although tonight's beer is not sponsored by Intel. <laughs> so thank you very much, Keith. Thank uh, you,
0: Greg, for the first round.
1: Uh, beer Ops. And uh, I guess um, it's it's... The thing that I've discovered is that if you just stop entering to email in a corporate environment, people stop sending you email, <laughs> and if you stop answering your phone, they stop ringing you, and you need to be sort of consciously aware of the way that you live your life. So If you put on a bathrobe and feel kind of, that's pretty cool, then you want to be conscious of whether that bathrobe should be worn all day, or whether it's something that should just be worn in the mornings, Right. You know, and the same thing applies to email and instant messaging. If you respond to every instant message within minutes, the people on the other end of those instant messages will expect you to respond consistently within minutes. Whereas if you respond consistently in hours or days, then people will get to expect that sort of response. And and then you start to train them like like the puppy dogs that they are, (laughs) because quite often they're not consciously aware of what they're doing. They're just you know, cycling over on sure. their tasks and they're not thinking about what they're doing, they'll just start to say, oh, well, I won't expect to go and stand at his desk. I won't expect him to answer the phone. I won't expect him to answer his email within an hour. Yep. I'll just send him a message and he'll get yep. back to me whenever. And that changes the mode.
2: Yeah. Um, now, do you think you can get away with that if the culture, like, there's there's a lot of, um, like, the, the, you know, the company I'm working for now, the role that I'm working for specifically, um, you know, a, Developing software, I actually don't need to attend as many meetings as my last job, where I was doing straight up, you know, yeah. consulting. Hmm. I I attended a ridiculous number of meetings in my last gig, <laughs> and uh, and so the culture between it, not just really the it's not really the company it's it's sort of just the purpose. Is that something you can fight, or do you sort of are you swimming upstream with respect to that?
1: There's no right answer to this, right? So yeah. the real answer is yes, no, maybe. Right. So the extreme of it could be uh, one of the things that. I do a lot of briefings with vendors. Vendors want to tell me about their products and I want to hear what it is they're doing about their products. But what a lot of them want to be able to um, talk to you in person or talk to you face to face. Are you coming to the valley? Are you going to be in you know such and such a town? And I go, no, I'm really not going to get on a plane and fly because that is an extremely inefficient use of my time. Right. Like, even if I lived in the US, it would still be a four to five hour and coming in from the UK to the US is a 21 hour yeah, one way. Yeah. Right? By the time I travel to the airport... Is it really?
2: Holy crap. I didn't even think about that.
1: Well, it's it's more than you think, right? The flight
2: itself is... Well, because I assume you have to connect.
1: uh, Not always. Usually, the only thing... I will generally not fly inside of the US. So, flying domestic or retail in America is really quite painful. (laughs) So, I would elect as a sort of like a 99% rule not to do that. So, however, I will fly international... I will fly regional inside of Europe. So, in this case, I flew from... Uh, London Heathrow to Amsterdam and Mm. then change from Amsterdam to fly into Portland. Right. And when I fly home, I'll be back, it goes back to Amsterdam and then fly on to Heathrow because international flights run on time. Right. In America, domestic flights are often overbooked. They cancel them. They, my life's too short to put up with that sort of, (laughs) uh, you know, childish behavior. Yeah. And so I just won't fly domestic in the US by choice for that reason. I need to be able to say, I'm going to be here at this time. I want to go home I don't want to be and of course because you fly international you need to be at the airport at two hours before so that means at least two hours maybe add a bit and so that means you're leaving three hours you're leaving wherever you are so but in the UK I live two and a half hours from the airport so a two and a half hour journey means you need to and then you've got to park at Heathrow but the car park is about a half an hour away and the bus only goes every 15 minutes so you have to allow an hour. Right. So now I've got a two-hour drive to the airport, an hour from the parking to catch a shuttle to the main terminal. Then I've got to check in at least two hours before. So that's a five hours lost. Mm. Then I've got a, a ten to twelve-hour flight, and then at the other end I then catch a get from the airport to wherever I'm going, and then I can. So.
2: Yeah. So no, I will not attend your event in the valley. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'd love to attend your event in the valley. Provided you're offering me a very strong value proposition. Exactly, okay, that's about it. Or
0: you're more than welcome to make the trip over the pond to see me. There you go. Why don't yeah. you have it yeah. here? Yeah. 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 I now, I happen
1: to live three hours outside of London, so make sure you add that onto your trip time. And remember, you'll be jet lagged when you get
0: there. Uh, <laughs> and. Yeah. Uh, Greg will still ask very difficult questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'll be, re- he'll be well
2: rested, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> he'll be on his game. No, he'll be yeah. on his game. I
0: practically, probably won't be. It's actually the
1: jet lag which makes me a bit. Um, Creative.
2: Okay. In my wow. Questioning life. That's, that's a great way to. Yeah. Play. I just power down. So kudos for that. <laughs> <laughs> a, I think that's a superpower.
1: Yeah. It powers up as my snark factor increases as I lag. There you go. <laughs> so mm. it's kind of a. It's a serious for me to you know, and what I want people to think about is there's an internet. You know, this thing called the internet. Yeah. You can. I hear it's pretty big. Yeah. I've I've heard lots of people talking about it. You know, yep. you can have you can have Skype. Yep.
0: You know, you could use GoToMeeting or. Preferably not WebEx, and never Link.
2: Yeah, yeah I heard
0: Bill Gates might uh, make it a uh, might support the next version of Windows. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. Nice. Could be, yeah. It could be huge. So why not find ways to use the internet to, to
2: to replace? Do you think it's Do you think it's like a carryover from the old, like you know, I want to take you out to dinner and like celebrate our our meeting that we've had, you know, as a customer or partner or whatever. You know what I mean? Well, I do think they want to do that? Is that Is that what marks it, or maybe they're just using the well, opportunity to go out to dinner? So there's
1: um. Because I often think about this. How can I make my life more efficient? How can I work better with vendors and customers? And, yeah, yeah. You know, with the audience and things like that. And how could we communicate better, right? There are times when face-to-face is absolutely in it. Like you and I, I'm in Portland. You came, picked up, we're at a bar, we're drinking beer. Sure. Face-to-face, can't beat it for a podcast, nope. right? But we record 99% of our podcasts, not face-to-face. Right. Because I can't fly to Portland just to record a show while drinking beer. Yeah. Although... I like the idea. That's
0: good.
2: <laughs> You would think about it first. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I would probably have to give in <laughs> to the simple reality that things aren't quite that perfect. Yeah. Uh, the, the flip side of it is that there are times when face-to-face is, you know, as you said, Keith, right, a minute ago, you need to be face-to-face with somebody for at least the first meeting, and maybe for a second meeting, and then but right. after that, you can start using video conferencing, like go to meeting and have the video turned on. That's usually not good because my hair is normally such
2: a mess, and you know <laughs> I have
0: that problem as well. Yeah, <laughs> you do. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, well, I have the, uh, the smoke stack. Can I do the vanilla um, the porter? Have you got any other porters? Uh, We've got a stout on nitro. Done. Nice. Did and done. And then, are you going to want another wheat by that time? You think?
0: Probably by that time, I will,
2: get yeah. This break bought to you by uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, beer pushers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This break say, oh, is yeah. bought to you
1: by Vertigo Brewing in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>
0: Does
2: that get us a discount? Literally
1: someone's
0: <laughs> garage. Well, they did <laughs> no. give us the dollar until dis- discount. So. Oh, did they? Yeah, they did. That's
2: not too bad. So I we've th- talked about the ops.
1: What ops? So, so I we, d- I we just, move into the beer. I just sort of think that... You, you can consciously make decisions about how you communicate with people. Oh, for sure, yeah. And, but you need to be careful to say there's a time to wear bathrobes and there's a time to mm. to put on grown-up clothes and go and meet face-to-face. Yeah. And that's the challenge.
2: You have to be proactive about it. Like, no one's going to do that for you. No one's going to communicate for you.
1: One of the things that we're talking about doing now is Packet Push just gets bigger and starts to grow up and becomes much more of a serious, you know, it's a full-time business now, right? Is that we're actually thinking about going flying into the valley and then spending two weeks going around visiting everybody in the valley? Because those guys are where the heart of the business is. Much how I, you know, there's much to dislike about Silicon Valley, <laughs> quite honestly, but there's much to love, yeah, right? Sure. And, and there, that's where everything is, and that's where the people are. And getting around and visiting them all is a way to cement
0: relationships. So good. So, be, Greg, I think that's a good question. I've wondered that as I've seen packet pushers kind of grow up. Hmm. The difference between this being something you did on the side versus this being your livelihood what are some of the kind of major things that you found that you know turning this thing that you really have a passion for but wasn't your primary source of income Mm -hmm. to something that's your primary source of income and you know I If I don't do a podcast on Tuesday, I got to do a podcast on Tuesday. I mean, you guys added Drew for that, I think, for that very reason. Um, I guess
1: there's a couple of things there. One is when we were doing it, like having full-time jobs as well as part-time jobs, like uh, like having full-time jobs and then packet pushes was the, the thing we did in the evenings. We were working hard, really, really hard, like Saturdays, Sundays and you know we were doing all of our own invoicing and all of our own debt collection and all of the show set up all the show editing so now that we are full time focused on this we were actually able to sit down and think really carefully about how do we run this business so we got a we have a now have somebody who does the editing for us i edit some of my shows so i might i think i'll edit this one down and do the mix out myself we sat down and thought about how can we scale up our output. Right. And the answer, of course, was we can't do it all ourselves and we don't have anything to relieve us from the sort of effort that we're putting into it. So the way that we would be able to do that is to start getting people in. The flip side of that, of course, is once we start having people working, in the, joining us on the team, is we've got to be able to pay them. We're fortunate enough to be able to increase the pricing of our product to justify bringing in those extra people. What that allowed us to do is for Ethan and I to start finding a practical life, work balance the second thing it allowed us to do is once we started to focus once we were full time on the business we were able to focus on content quality how could we improve the audio quality how could we improve the content that we create so now we spend much more time on researching topics preparing topics preparing agendas preparing and and working on guests and it might all look a bit accidental but it's not it's all very deliberate yeah and we try and make it sound natural spontaneous create like tonight's very spontaneous <laughs> very. <laughs> in the sense that i was carrying around a bag full of microphones in a recording yeah. rig hey there's a table hey there's a table <laughs> let's record a show so not that spontaneous but right. the normal packet pushes sounds sort of ordinary but that's very deliberate we craft it that way it's not it's intentionally that way because That was the feel and the way we wanted it to be. It should be a little bit creative, it should be a little bit fun, it would be boring to sit down and listen to people. Welcome to Packet Fish's podcast. We're going to talk about data networking because this is the greatest data networking podcast on the internet today. Welcome to our guests. right? You just go like, next! Part of the Packet Push's story is being a little crazy, being a little stupid, being a little... And But where we want to be able to do is we want to be able to get better quality content. So the way we could improve, attract more people is to have content that's top quality, to make it focused, to have a message, a theme that runs through the shows, to find really good guests and spend hours and hours scheduling them, literally hours and hours sure. to schedule people to turn up. Oh, I believe time. it. And to have microphones of reasonable quality and to get Skype working and...
2: So I'm curious, like, you've scaled everything up and you're still doing it, I imagine. Yeah. You're talking to a lot of these vendors who, um, you know, some of which is sponsored content, Mm. some of which is not. And and there's a lot of things going on Mm. in the industry, like a lot. with respect to the content that you're receiving, like vendors approach you and say, I want to talk about this, yep. uh, whether it's sponsored or not. Um, do you think, is is, is the, the industry trends that are going on right now, do you think that's vendor driven or do you think that's something that, that the customers or maybe you guys or, or guys like you uh, are driving in terms of where where the customers want to focus? Are the vendors trying to drive this kind of thing or are they more reacting to it?
1: Again, so there's never a one answer to these questions. To that sort of question yeah. right the answer is of course there's a spectrum of things vendors are producing products uh so your incumbent vendors your big companies they're moving slow they don't want to disrupt their existing revenue streams right. so they're often lagging so they're certainly not creating markets and that's perfectly acceptable that's not a criticism Sorry, Greg,
0: with the exception of intel we learned that they yeah. are trying to obsolete themselves all the time they their event yeah forcing
1: function they they yeah. absolutely want to drive change because the faster it
2: changes, yeah. the more products Intel sells. Well, the, re- but the this doesn't
1: f- apply to companies like Cisco and Juniper because yeah. the faster the market changes, the less profits they make.
2: Right, right. Well, that's the reason I asked the question, right? And and you know, there's a lot of talk right now, especially considering the AO- a- AWS reinvent just just ended. Uh, the whole Dell EMC thing is is going on. There's a lot of talk about uh, what's the next generation of of uh, IT consumption, basically. Yep. So I'm curious where that conversation's taking So
1: place. the vendors produce products. We want to talk about those products because that's what you can go and buy. Mm. But generally Packer Pushes is focused on a split horizon, like an event horizon, that's three to five years in the future. We're sort of looking into a mythical future about where you're going to go. So you know that, that cheesy management joke about, you know when you hit a golf ball and you put your eyes down and you look at the ball and then you hit the ball and the ball doesn't go where you want it to do? But if you put your, put the ball down and then look at where you're going to hit it, and then you hit it, and it goes to where you're looking at. It. Yeah. So that is what Packet Pushes tries to do. We look at the future so that you can pick it up and run with that in that direction. Sure.
2: What kind of topics uh, do you want to get into that maybe you haven't gotten into yet or, or haven't gotten into a lot?
1: I guess I'd like to talk more about hardware, because hardware is it's like an engine in a car. You can have a four-cylinder, 600cc engine. It'll get you from point A to point B. Sure. But your car actually wouldn't be very good for a 1,000-mile haul, cross-country. Right. So at that point, you might want to talk about having a V6 with slightly larger capacity. And Your hardware defines what's possible to be achieved, and the better the hardware, the faster the hardware, the more you can do. So Intel x86 platform, they were showing us some charts this week talking about 120 gigabits per second out of six cores of packet processing for NFV functionality. Yeah. So they want to talk about the cloudification of the network, like worst tagline ever. But <laughs> uh, you know, the point is, kind of like maximum cheese, but <laughs> the point is is that if you're gonna be willing to allocate all six cores to packet processing, you can thump more packets through that box than you can through a top-end Cisco router. Sure, sure. With all of its fancy custom silicon right. and all that sort of... So I think that silicon's important, but the software is much more important that software thing is a much more amorphous. How do you talk about, like you, you write code, you develop automation engines or and orchestration, you integrate into an yeah, orchestration sure. system that your employer has built for you. How do you talk about that in a way that is meaningfully, you're writing Python code that takes a hash and then slices through the hash to extract and then it uh, takes it and it goes out and loads the DHCP. It, you know, how do you explain that in, in a way that's meaningful? there's a there's a you've got to understand the medium of the podcast and what you can communicate and there's some topics which are immutably sure. resistant to, to discussion you can only do it by showing mm-hmm. and that's what your blog does you've done those video casts on uh, keeping it where you've done like the you know here's the youtube do this yeah sure, right? sure. that's the medium for that there are other times when going to a conference and listening to somebody has impact. Although generally I don't believe conferences are very useful, yeah. I think you're better off attending meetups and smaller events mm-hmm. where real people get up to talk about their experiences and promote that. Right. Your brain to start thinking right. about how you're doing things. So I think that's one thing. I secondly think that people need to see the big picture, not the little picture. When we look at SDN. A lot of people go, oh, but you know, routing protocols are the way forward, or MPLS. Is, that's not SDN. And in and of itself, is nothing until you start thinking about NFV and having firewalls that run as x86 virtual machines. And SDN, if you, you if you're running a firewall on it as an as an NFV instance, and that firewall moves from machine A to machine B, how the hell are you going to move the traffic, yeah. right? What's going to move that? That's SDN. But SDN and NFV has no meaning until you start talking about the orchestration system that sits above it. Right. So that when you provision the firewall and put the firewall rules into the firewall and you create a Docker container on top of the virtual machine that's using a vSwitch, how do you do all of those 50 functions at one point in time?
2: Well, the funny thing is, you know, especially a lot of the vendors that are coming out with SDN products, they like to talk about their product like it is and you know the end- all solution to all of you know to all of mankind's problems when in reality you know a lot of production customers you know from from what people are telling me a lot of them use them in very uh, limited capacities you know not necessarily a POC, that's sort of that's not really fair but mm. it's always very pointed right It's like some of our applications need this so we're going to put it there but everything else is legacy it's always it's always shades of gray not black and white
1: and the thing I would like people to start thinking about is stop thinking of your data center network as one network or your campus network as one network right the way you should think about it is you've got lots of small networks that are all connected together. If you start to build you know if you've got legacy infrastructure and then over here you've got a virtual overlay network in the new infrastructure and over here is your DMZ where you're, you've got all your security infrastructure, that's three separate networks. You shouldn't expect to connect them all together using the same orchestration system right I don't want to be critical about Cisco's ACI. But the idea that you're going to solve every networking problem you've got with one platform doesn't always ring true to me.
2: You know, this is this is this goes well beyond Cisco. This yeah. goes, frankly, this is an industry-wide thing. I wrote a blog post about this uh, recently. Actually, yeah. the customers that are large enough to warrant that, those kind of solutions um, tend to uh, think of those kind of things, those kind of umbrella products, as yes. a little more high risk. Right? Yeah. That's too, there's too much risk. If putting our eggs in that basket, that's too much risk. From a business perspective, we just yeah. don't want to tolerate that much risk. Yeah. So what they do, again, is, is is they compartmentalize it. They say, okay, well, your technology works pretty well, but we're going to compartmentalize it to this one line blast of business. radius. So what you're doing is minimizing exactly. the
1: size of the blast radius.
2: Right. When something so we'll, blows yeah.
1: up. So the federation between
2: th- these systems is still humankind, right? Yes. Human beings.
1: Yeah. And... And that's what I think is critical stop thinking of a data center as one big network think of it as over here is my spanning tree network and it's run like this and over, and that's where my legacy systems are but over here is an ECMP that's running on my virtualization and right. my ESX and but you know what I'm going to build up an openStack infrastructure because the publishing price of a, of a VMware stack is punitive and not everything in my data center needs to be you know quite honestly running you know, with a with a with a consumption tax, so yeah. maybe I could build an OpenStack over here, but that's got a different switches and different needs and different.
2: Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, 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 I I think about this a lot because because there's a lot of sense to be had. It, it makes a lot of sense to build this sort of heterogeneous environment, right? Mm. Um, especially if you're a, of a medium to large scale. Small businesses probably don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. Generally, they want their stuff from one one stop. You know, they, that's what they want. But if you get to this larger scale, even, even just sort of your regular enterprise customer, right? They want to build something that makes sense that doesn't induce a lot of risk. But yeah. this heterogeneous environment then becomes so much harder to manage because it's not from one shop. And yeah. they have to deal with all of these, uh, these different management tools. And so, but,
1: but so the advantage of a, of, a non, of a non-heterogeneous environment, this is something I was talking about somebody just this week. Yeah, we if were you, just talking about this at the Intel. Yeah, degree. if you've got 20 different vendors in your network, you know what you don't do? Implement the wingy-wong dong Right, exactly. Exactly. You break everything in your design down to what's the one thing that's universal
0: to everything. Right. Okay? So I shouldn't be running ERGRP?
1: Running ERGRP, actually, that's not really the question. The question is, should you be running IP routing? Should you be running policy-based routing? Do you want to run an MPLS? Well, if you run MPLS, who's MPLS? Which version of MPLS, you know, which one of those MPLS extensions are you yeah. going to run in your data center? If you run, so, if you run eigrp then you can't connect other vendors firewalls because they don't speak eigrp and if you're going to route through those firewalls you need to use ospf and if you get into ospf to eigrp redistribution you've just opened up a whole bag of hurt like dvd class hurt you
2: know. and then you and then you've reintroduced that risk that you eliminated in the first step yes so it's interesting. I think I think it's it's just an interesting conversation to have because there's there's pro, there's pros and cons to both approaches. But for the heterogeneous approach, it it makes a lot of sense because it allows you to reduce your design down to that which you know works. Things like OSPF. OSPF is known to work, so that's fine. But it, but it does implement these other these other headaches like having a, many more points of management. You, yeah. you no longer can buy into this you know management tool that your that your vendor of choice is selling you. You yeah. almost have to write it yourself.
1: Well, the trick about a single vendor management tool is it's inherently good at their technology. Right. And rightly so because they wrote it that they're right. probably testing it on their own products. And when it comes to supporting, let's take HP's IMC, which is a very good product, right? Yeah. But, and it does a great job of managing Cisco kit. does a less great job of managing Juniper kit. Sure. And if you've got box, it does a even less great because the only two, you know, what APIs is it using to pull the data from? Well, it's only got the standard SNMP, the two that. So it can only get the variables and configuration. Well, you know, you, can, you get <laughs> yeah. it starts to get right out there on the pale. So if you use that vendor tool set, you are restricted by the platform or the the tool set that you're given. You can, you know, if you've only been given a left-handed screwdriver, you can only use left-handed screws. So yeah. Greg,
0: one of the problems that I've run into, you know, practically, I. Don't I don't pod- podcast normally on, on your channel, so I can say these things. Yeah. Is Cisco beat me <laughs> up when I was at a uh, ISV when I recommended a life-size video conferencing solution, front-end, Yeah, versus the, the Cisco's front-end solution because it didn't, it didn't integrate well with Cisco. Yeah. So it didn't have all of the, the customizable tools. And my management team came back to me because the management team had... Golf, play golf with the Cisco execs and said, "You know the Cisco what? Cisco had done its usual right. thing
1: of, of, if if I can't convince the person who's making the decision, I'll go over his head. Exactly. And if that doesn't work, I'll go over his head. They keep going up
0: until they get the answer that they want. Yeah. And uh, at the, I was forced to reevaluate, I, to rerun my trade study and have integration as a weighted factor in the in my trade study. Mm. So while it's important to uh, have kind of this independent view of, you know, I'm going to architect the solution in an independent manner. Politics sometimes does get in the way. Vendor politics still gets Yeah,
1: I, I always get a bit, I've seen Cisco echo, this is a tactic that IBM used to do in the old days, is if they couldn't convince the person who was making the decision, they go above the person's making the decision head, and then keep going up. And the philosophy of that tactic is that you you have to win the deal today. There is no tomorrow, <laughs> right? So if I have to burn bridges with you and make you and make you an enemy, that's perfectly fine because there's only today's business that matters.
0: Which is amazing because I was an uh, early adopter of Cisco seven thousand, the seven thousand K, mm. and that, you know that's a pretty big investment. Yeah, and in a product that was initially and some may argue still pretty buggy. Yeah. So, so all of these, all of these
2: concerns, um, sort of go to my, I guess, what the, the broader point that I'm trying to make. Does this mean that the customer, if they, there's so there's two, there's two options. First off, customer may say, you know what, my application can run in the cloud. I'm going to put it there. Yep, that's one very, very important to consider uh, use case. The other use case, let's let's just say you maintain some on-prem stuff, right? So yep. you're maintaining your own stuff. Uh, and you're at a scale where it really maybe doesn't make sense to move to the cloud. You've already got a lot of investment in, in yeah. your, local, your local gear.
1: Maybe your application can't be
2: cloudified. Sure. So, so then, so then in, that, in that specific case, with all of these headaches, right, especially running a heterogeneous environment and going down all of these rabbit holes, these vendors have been telling us for years, I can solve that problem. I can solve that problem. There's always these caveats, right? You can solve the problem for your gear. You can't necessarily solve it for the other things that I have, right? Yes. I need you to solve all of my problems, are we now realizing, I guess, as customers, that that's just not going to happen, and we need to start answering those problems ourselves, either through maybe outsourcing some of the some of the tool creation or maybe building it building it in house?
1: You're getting but, close to one of my Rantafestos, Festos. Right? <laughs> oh, I heard that term earlier today. I love it,
2: by the way. I'm going to borrow it. I stole it from somebody else. Oh, okay. I'm not going to. I don't feel so bad then.
1: Uh, but Rantafesto is how much competency does your average enterprise IT team have? Mm. How many people there have computer science degrees that have taught them the fundamentals of computer science or the fundamentals of data transfer? You know, do you understand bit streams versus packet streams? Do you understand that TCP is a streaming protocol, IP is a packet protocol, and there's a distraction you know, if I tell you that developing code, you know, if you're going to start writing your own Python scripts, do you actually understand the difference between an M tree and a B tree? and those types of algorithmic approaches. What about if you, you know, have you thought about how you can approach machine learning to looking at log files to do predictive analysis, predictive outcomes about what something's going wrong? Well, if you don't under, haven't got say a foundational grip or to foundational teaching in those concepts, how do you get started? How do you even know that those are critical things? And I wonder how many people in enterprise IT actually have degrees And then out of those who even have degrees, how many of those have actually activated? Now, as you said to me in a previous show, there are people who actively went out and researched, learned, who had a passion, who were inspired or wanted to learn more, were hungry to learn more. And they go and read the research papers. I mean, the internet is amazing. Have you heard of it? I have, yeah. I I hear it's good for web I hear it's good for all sorts of things, right? But one of the great things is you can go and find research papers that make you think about how things work or textbooks or blog posts that people write about how something, you shouldn't just think about, this is how I configure this thing, why do you configure this thing, what does that mean, and there are even training programs that will help you to understand those things, instead of teaching you how to drive the car, you need to learn how the engine works, why the engine works, blah, 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 so I I guess I'm I'm endlessly concerned that enterprise IT over the last decade has been de-skilled to the point where there are nothing left, yeah. And they don't even know how to actually intelligently make decisions about the products they're buying. They just go, "Oh, vendor, vendor X is selling me this thing. Therefore, it's good. It's on our approved vendor list. We just buy more of the same old thing."
2: Yeah, I don't know. Um, it, it, I guess it really depends on the company. Uh, I've met I've met some some uh, customers that that really have a great idea of what they're doing, hmm. and then I've met others that uh, I was just I was just tweeting this actually. Uh, I used to I, I used to consult. And I met a, quite a few companies that uh, none of their engineers had ever heard of server virtualization. This was two years ago, um, and so you'll get the broad spectrum. So anything I,
0: like storage virtualization? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just
2: backtrack, I think, like ten years. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I I agree with you in part. I think because because there are a lot of companies like that, but it's um, I think there's there's a, a subset of that where there are there are employees that that have the passion, they just for whatever reason they don't listen to podcasts like this, they don't they don't go to the sure. trade mags and things like that. They could do it. And I and I don't know I don't know what the solution is other than just trying to reach out to those companies and and trying to trying to educate them that there's more out there. They may just not know. Yeah, but I mean,
1: you know, vendors have been doing their training programs for 15 years now.
2: Uh, w- w- would you trust a vendor training program if you work for an enterprise? I would if if I was working for a customer for an enterprise, right? And I'm and I'm looking at this vendor training program. I would I- instantly assume that their job is to train me on their product alone.
1: Yes. And
2: but that's probably a pretty fair for assessment. for a lot of
1: people who have no foundational knowledge. Cause let's say they came out of high school, did five years of working in McDonald's, and then they were recruited as a help
0: desk person, and then they did some. That's work. my career path, by the way. Just so you know. Replace McDonald's with Wendy's. (laughs) That that was me. Wendy's is much better than McDonald's. Columbus, Ohio plug. (laughs) 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 You've really
1: made the most of those opportunities. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, I've met people in enterprise IT who've gone to a vendor training course, they've done level one, level two, level three, classed as an expert, and couldn't tell you why MPL's networking is... There's a lot of that, yeah. yeah. They believe that everything that they learned, they believed all of the stuff that came in that material is everything that I needed to know and there's nothing more because if those vendors are telling me that this is what I need to know then this is and they may have found that very challenging but that doesn't make them talented or wise or
2: yeah, well, I mean, it's like I said at the beginning, there's, there's, there, are, there is there's, there is there are, a subset of the industry that's going to just move everything to the cloud. And it won't be their decision, I don't think. I think it'll just be the, econ- the economics of this, how it'll work itself out. Uh,
1: I'm not quite so bullish. I find that a lot of people move things to the cloud and then suddenly discover how expensive the cloud is and then move it back. Really? Yeah. Okay. I've met a, quite a few companies who've done that, moved yeah. stuff to, or they were cloud native. Now, there's a couple of things in here. One is I've met a number of startups who put stuff in the cloud and then they get to a certain amount of spending and it's cheaper to pull it back in-house. Hmm. But what they've done is they were cloud native to start with. So their cloud, their applications were built on AWS or Google Compute. Or, and so putting it back into corporate IT, once it's been cloudified or cloud native, there's so many air quotes floating <laughs> around here right now, I, I'm gonna have to I get a bucket. I think there's a foundation for that. Yeah, there's a bucket. <laughs> I think I need a bucket. But if you can imagine, if you had built an app from the ground up on a cloud platform, sure. AWS or whatever, bringing it into a private cloud is actually incredibly cheap. The mm. problem with cloudifying your existing Microsoft Exchange service is that Microsoft Exchange can't be just got moved into AWS. The only way to move it is to take it to Azure and they give you, you know, or you move to Google Mail. Yeah. And then you've got to go through the retraining. You can't, you've got to or what about your existing three-tier app, which has a web server, a middleware, and a Microsoft SQL backend? You can't just pick that up and drop it into AWS with a MongoDB, a message queue, <laughs> and, and an engine. Control-C, Control-V. Yeah, that's right. You and Yeah, <laughs> you, you know, the, you, you're talking about a full-on... I, I think there's a gap between the legacy apps that we have today, and they're going to be in place as they are, And starting from around about now, you're going to develop new apps that are cloud ready. And you're going to do that in the public cloud, and you're going to prove them out and develop them, and then you're going to pull them out of the public cloud and put them back into your private cloud because it's so much cheaper to own a private cloud.
2: Mm.
1: Let me give you a practical example. I was talking to a guy, his Amazon AWS spend was 150,000 pounds a month, or roughly 250,000 US dollars. And because it was so much money, it was actually worth him to have five people each costing him $5,000 a month or $10,000 a month to try and reduce his Amazon AWS cost.
2: The people were actually more expensive than the, the AWS costs. Well, the, or less less expensive. They were less
1: expensive because they were able to cut a hundred thousand out of his AWS bill. Right. Find the overrunning servers. Write scripts. Move the instances around. Yeah. load balance them between availability zones. Well, does
2: spend, that does that il- does that illuminate maybe a, a shortcoming of the cloud offerings today? I mean, isn't that their job well, to what help he educate did, users on how so to what run what these this
1: things? So what this guy told me the story of was he was able to take all of his dev test and back-end instances and move them into a closet. Right, of, you know, a half a rack of servers. Right, and get rid of three of the five guys, and spend the other two just automating his AWS instance. And now all of a sudden, his costs went down to under fifty thousand, fifty thousand pounds a month, and he had less headcount. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it moving to the cloud isn't about saving money, it's about is about transforming the way you approach your technology
2: stack. Sure, yeah.
1: So start thinking about microservices, containers. Yeah.
2: Well it's it's always padding. I mean, this is the big beef that I have. It you know, the, the the term cost savings is thrown around way too much for my liking. It's always cost moving, right? You're never you're never really eliminating costs. What you're doing is you're restructuring so that you can be more efficient. Yeah. That doesn't mean you just instantly save money, you yeah. know, for the first month.
1: Mm-hmm. So and good luck with finding an AWS expert.
0: Right, that's <laughs> something to think about too. They're oh, this, expensive and hard to find. This becomes a, when I was, one of the things that kind of lit up for me when we went to o- OHSU, the cancer research facility here that Intel uses the reference costume. God, you would have loved that. It was <laughs> incredible. But one of the things that kind of hit me, the data problem that they have, is a technology problem that the cloud, that you address with cloud technology. So this is most definitely not about cost savings, it's about the capability to solve the problem. And uh, when you try and shift, shift, use cloud to shift cost, or save cost, that doesn't work. When you use the uh, cloud to solve problems of, how do I share, you know, 22 petabytes, you know, 22, Thirty petabytes of data across thirty different organizations. You can't do that with traditional models.
2: I think the the underpinning here, whether it's whether the apps run in the cloud or not, um, I, I one of the things that I've seen growing a little, just a little bit. It's not an exponential curve, but I see a lot more companies taking control of their own technology roadmap. Um, where before we we're really behooven to the vendor's roadmap. Hmm. Oh, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna run fabric path now because that's the hot new thing. We're um,
1: trying to build a roadmap for a thousand customers. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which, but not yours. But not you. Never
2: met your needs because exactly. they were
1: dumbing it down to meet a roadmap of a thousand. Right. Whereas now with open source you can go, I want some of this, so exactly. I want some of this, so exactly. I want some of
2: this. So maybe it, maybe again, this is not cost savings, this is cost yeah. moving, where you're saying I have I have just the same amount of spend because I've moved those costs from capital expenditures to uh, to operational or maybe, maybe because you've gotten rid of some maintenance contracts, maybe you just yeah. you know, cut that. Whatever it is, whatever the, whatever the cost savings is, what you have as a result of that is, is enhanced control over your own infrastructure. And uh, I am the last person to talk about how to translate that into dollars. Yeah. All I know is control is good.
0: Well, the, bring the conversation back to full circle, you know, the, one of the problems that Greg brought up is talent. So in order to do that, it, you introduce a level of risk into an organization. So, to say that I'm going to deploy a open source solution means that I need to have the talent to deploy the solution. So, you know, it becomes a build versus buy, this classic build versus buy. But I think from a practical, I'm getting more and more convinced from a practical perspective, Mm. enterprises won't have a choice. Mm. That if you want to compete against more agile uh, enterprises or smaller companies, you have to have this capability yeah. to move quickly and beyond the vendor's roadmap. Yeah. So it's a uh, interesting problem that I think it will come to ahead.
1: a head. one of the interesting things I remember is back in 2003, 2000, yeah, 2003, 2004, I was working for a large financial institution and they had a problem in their IT department in that they were an ex, uh, they were an ex government bank. And that bank had transitioned from being government-owned to being privately-owned, and the go- and the government sold it off, and you know, it's issued shares to the public, and so forth and so on. But they had a lot of problems with unions and in- incumbent working practices. I would go and in, into this department. I, mean, I tell you, I went into this company. It used to go in around about 4:30 in the afternoon to be able to get in and to do work in the evenings. They had the change window, right? Except. One day I turned up too late. I turned up at about 5 to 5, and I couldn't get in the door because of all the other people exiting. (laughs) And they were literally at the door in a big round, waiting and then clocking off on a Bundy clock. (laughs) And I remember sitting in a meeting. I was very young still. like It was a long time ago. And I remember going... And he said... And then they decided to outsource the entire IT department. And I was sitting on the edges of a discussion, and the CIO said, he said... I'm not outsourcing because it's cheaper. But he said, I've got a worse problem internally in my culture where these people think they're still in the public service, they still work to rule, they're not willing to change their jobs, they're not willing to be flexible and change their mindset. So here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to move it all and then in three to five years I'm going to start bringing it back piece by piece. And the pieces I don't want, I'm just going to throw them away. Yeah. But he said, by the time they come, I'm giving all those employees over, transferring them all to IBM, and when they come back, if they come back, they'll be the people I want. Or I'm going to start building new systems and new teams that work to a modern culture. Right. And so he wasn't doing, tra- doing an outsourcing program to save money. He wasn't really doing an outsourcing program to improve. He was doing it to transform the whole approach to the business. And basically, and I think cloudification is, approximately similar. There are a lot of enterprise companies hanging on to legacy technologies that they should have abandoned, like storage arrays. What's up with that? You don't need 100% of your storage needs on a storage array using LUNs. You should have two systems. You should have a block storage and an object storage system somewhere in your network, and you should be migrating away from LUNs and block storage to something else. But people say, you know, storage, it's mystical magic. I, I, I need the, I can only support one platform. And I've chosen my incumbent vendor, NetApp, EMC, blah, blah. And that's the only thing that will run. And of course, you pay a punitive penalty for sticking with that vendor. You don't yeah. uh, You don't want that. So I think that, the, that this cloudification process is far more nuanced than most people think. I can't pick up my apps. I can't move them. I've got transformation, I need to kick IT teams in the teeth so that they start to reboot my change cycle. I need to get rid of ITIL. How do I get rid of ITIL?
2: <laughs>
1: I, well, the easiest way to get rid of ITIL is to move everything out of where ITIL lives, clean out all the deadwood, and then bring it back. And I suspect that the long-term trend in, ITIL, in, in, in private cloud is to push it into the public cloud and bring it back onto the private cloud. So while I believe that hybrid cloud is largely a waste of time, I do believe that it might be a transformational. And for that matter, maybe some of it stays in the public cloud. Maybe the public cloud is right for some things.
2: Yeah, sure.
1: And maybe some, maybe some things work best in the private cloud. But it's that transformation from where we are to where we're going. That it's a nuanced. It's never There's never one answer. Right. You've got to be willing to embrace all answers depending on what's happening.
2: Yeah. That's a Unix philosophy, by the way. Yeah. There's a rule in the Unix philosophy. There, uh, 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 distrust all claims for the one true way, I believe. Hmm. I might that be getting that familiar, wrong. Yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah.
1: That's a bit Star Wars. Like a little Jedi. bit. A little bit. There's always a the dark the side. Image of Han
0: Solo. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Who was shot first, by the way? Um. Actually.
1: Oh, look at that. Uh, Star uh, Wars I'm wearing a Star
2: Wars t-shirt. Captain Kirk. <laughs> oh, no. I am not <laughs> a Trekkie. Yeah. Sorry, you will find no Trek
0: references here. <laughs> what are you guys doing with microphones? We're recording
1: a podcast. What? We're recording a radio show.
2: Really?
1: Yeah. yeah. You just dropped yeah. in.
2: I just dropped yep. in. You did indeed?
0: It is wonderful. <laughs>
2: Um, where were we I don't know the uh, we just had our sponsor 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 plug I think <laughs> whatever
1: yeah it's um, yeah the cloud the cloud's interesting I, I'd be interested to see how it turns out because sure. I think it's going to be more complicated and yeah oh absolutely it's a nuance long term it'll never but be like, one thing uh, uh, one of the things I note is that the recent Amazon AWS conference didn't announce a discount like a price reduction anyway sure yeah I wonder why yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll leave that as homework for the audience yeah I think that's just about it have we got anything else we should jibber jab about?
2: unless you want me to go into the uh, the chemistry behind beer making let's which- do that
1: when you make beer, do you do porters or do you do lagers, ales, IPAs?
2: So lagers are hard. There are actually two types of beer. Yes. Most people think there's more than two, but there's only two. Yeah. And it comes down to the way fermentation takes place. There's yeah. stouts, or mm-hmm. sorry, I was thinking of stouts because I'm looking at a stout.
1: Well, I, uh, I, am, I am a stout lover. <laughs>
2: yeah, as and am I. Would, stouts would, are delicious. Would,
1: as, would, would actually be the best way to describe it. Sure. I will drink a stout over any other beer every day of the week.
2: So there's two types of beer. There's ale and there's lager, right? Yeah. Ales ferment at relatively close to room temperature. They're called top they use top fermenting yeast the yep. fermentation occurs at the top yep. whereas lagers tend to ferment at the bottom and they have to be a little colder when they ferment yeah so those are the two styles of beer and I've, and I have the brewed-
1: advantage of lager of course is it's an accelerated process it mm. occurs in a much shorter time frame yeah and that's why you find the brewers is promoting lager yeah because they can brew it faster which cheaper. makes it cheaper yeah but the disadvantage of and most of those new beer, new lagers that you like to drink are actually chemically accelerated. Oh, and that's yeah. why they give you a hangover. Yeah. Yes.
2: That's that's not fun.
1: Yeah, you know that you know <laughs> they talk about cold, chill filtered or cold filtered yeah. beer. Yeah. 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 You know why they do that? To make the sediment get out faster. Yeah. Yeah, by making it by freezing it, you yeah. actually freeze the sediment out in a pint.
2: Well, that's the that's the big thing, you know, for homebrew. You know, there's always some sediment at the bottom, and yeah. and uh, I always introduce some of my beer to to you know, some folks that, that would appreciate it, but then also some folks that maybe aren't used to that kind of thing. And they always see the sediment in the bottom, and be like, is this okay to drink? <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, yeah. It's it, natural. It's fine. Like, it's this fine. is how it should be, actually. Yeah. So
1: the point is that most of the commercial lagers that you drink are built to a price. Yeah. They're, never, they're usually very poor quality, mm. and they're using an accelerated brewing process that makes them taste like
2: horse's ass. Right. Oh, and they do, yes. absolutely.
1: You know why they serve beer cold? So it actually numbs your taste buds. So yeah, you can't taste. It. I can see that. So when you drink a beer which is actually sort of sub fifteen degrees, so something down around eight, nine degrees C, it's literally built so that your taste buds are numbed, <laughs> and you don't actually taste the beer. I can that's see that. That's why you should never drink cold beer. It, like that's a bit of a purist view. I'm a far more elastic about it. Yeah. But the beer that is like chill filtered or cold filtered or extra cold or all right. that, basically what they're trying to do is sell you the cheapest possible rubbish. And then call it and define that as a feature.
2: And we love it in America. I didn't <laughs> we make drink that. that stuff. I didn't up. draw
1: that bow. We <laughs> <I actively laughs> love cold
2: beer. I actively fight that culture whenever I can, but yes. I can see it.
1: I mean, warm beer is an experience. You, you do need to, if you've spent your I agree. life. So I grew up in Australia where beer is served at 8 degrees or so 8.5 degrees centigrade. Hmm. And, uh, when it I gets, don't know what
2: that is in, in American measurements, unfortunately.
1: Uh, that would be and cold (laughs) yeah it wasn't until I got to the UK and then even after like five years in the UK I still hadn't gotten to this room temperature beer but now I drink bitter Hmm. like real mint
2: yeah sure Uh yeah
1: like off the pump no gas flat room temperature (laughs) What sort of beer are you brewing now? Are oh, you going to get back into it, do you
2: think? I am, yeah. Uh, I just moved, so all of my equipment's still pretty much stored away. But uh, I, I do a lot of... Uh, I used to do a lot of IPAs. Uh, I, I really enjoy the interaction of, of the various hops that I uh, would purchase. But um, I've, I'm sort of boycotting the, 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 uh, the condition of... Hoppy beer here in the U.S. I think we're a little obsessed with it. Yeah, I think there's a lot more about beer that we should be able to appreciate. So yeah. I'm trying to go down the the more of the darker beer path. Yeah. I've done a few reds. and those are pretty easy though. Have you um, used seaweed yet? No, <laughs> I have not. I used to use seaweed in my brewing to um,
1: to, to settle out the sediment.
2: Really? Yeah. yeah there's okay. a whole bunch of like,
1: really esoteric. Compounds yeah, yeah. Well, talking.
2: you've heard of uh, you've heard of the the cold uh, the um, the freeze uh, flash. Uh, there's the term for it. Where uh, you can apply a certain temperature to to the beer during fermentation for a very short period of time, uh, where it helps the sediment uh, coagulate more, yeah, that's so a it drops.
1: Chill filter, chill filter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cold flash. Yeah, cold. yeah that's yeah. what they do. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. but it also um, brings a lot of bitterness in. Yeah, that's true. So it actually accelerates. It's just an acceleration process. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of beer. Uh, do you know Budweiser? Mm? So there's a thing called Budweiser Bar, which is actually uh, my local camera pub in the UK used to sell it. And the normal Budweiser that you drink here in the U.S. takes about 12 hours to brew. Sure. 12 to 24 hours. I'm not sure of the exact number, so I might be wrong. Easily fast. But this Budweiser Var actually comes from the German Budweiser brewery. It takes 120 days. Hmm. Right? It's not cheap. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I can imagine. I
1: just want to point that out. That it yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Drink.
1: yeah. It ain't cheap. It actually tastes radically different to the Budweiser that you're, or Budweiser here in America. Because in Germany, a W is actually a V or a ba. So Budweiser, mm. um, a So Budweiser, Var is actually 120 days in the brewing process. Tastes unbelievably different to the um, horse piss that is normally <laughs> served in a can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think I'd brew my own. I think I might, I might lack the patience these days. Yeah, and the temptation of having a whole keg of beer might be just a little bit. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, we got to give it most away. That's the lesson I've learned: is you have to, you have to be generous with it. Otherwise, yeah. you will drink it all.
1: <laughs> well, Mind you, a bathrobe and a,
0: and a keg of beer just just. Oh, that's a bad everything. combination, it's Greg. Just, uh... I don't want to even think
2: about that. Working from home with a bathrobe and, and, and a have keg of those, beer. Uh, anal <laughs> personalities, where the whole
0: thing has to be like, you have to clean your plate. Oh, here. Yeah. Empty, empty the can. I can't. Going. I can't waste
2: this beer. Yeah, it's gonna. It's gonna go bad. Uh, no. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I think on that note, we might wrap this uh, rather unique uh, episode of Bag of Pushes. Something that I think I'll repeat on a regular basis and uh, point out that I've received a nitrogenated dark beer. What would you call it? Yeah, a stout. It's a, it's a stout. Yeah, it's a stout. Nitrogenated. I like nitrogenated beers. Yes. So it's sort of loosely Guinness-style, mm. and I must admit, it's very lush, for <laughs> that matters, Thank you for
0: joining us today. Keith, please tell people where they can find you. You can find me on the Twitters, at CTO Advisor, and the blog is thectoadvisor.com. Matt?
2: Uh, you can find me on uh, my blog at net, and on Twitter as the aforementioned handle, MIRDIN, M-I-E-R-D-I-N.
1: <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been a... Uh, Occasional podcast that may or may not ever happen again. <laughs> uh, the noise in the background is a bunch of Americans being notably rowdy, and then they can't hold the noise down just because people are reporting in the table next to them. You'd think, like at a bar, people could just shut the hell up. <laughs> but apparently, not. when
0: people bring out mics.
1: Yeah, yeah, you'd think. like, But hey, I'm Greg Farrow. Thanks for listening to the Packer Pushes. As always, remember that too much networking would never be enough.